Good evening. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. What a joy to see such a, a lively, full audience. We're thrilled to have you here. My name is Jamie Boskett, and I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And on behalf of our entire board of trustees who just finished their uh, summer meeting today, uh, and, and many of them are still with us this evening, as well as all my colleagues on our staff, uh, we'd like to welcome you to the 30th annual J. Harvey Wilkinson Jr. Lecture. Thank you. I also extend a very special welcome tonight, and we're so thrilled to have uh, the National History Academy with us. Yeah, yeah. The better part of 100 students from across the country are with us this evening. Uh, this lecture is the culmination of their day here and around Richmond as they journey across our Commonwealth and the Mid-Atlantic visiting some of the most important national historical sites to discuss the foundations of American democracy and our responsibilities as citizens. Uh, so welcome to all of you and well done for participating in such a wonderful program. We're really honored to have you with us tonight. As most of you know, this lecture is named in memory of one of the leading figures in Virginia banking, Harvey Wilkinson. He was deeply respected in financial circles here in Virginia and certainly well beyond. Uh, but he's also here in particular remembered for his deep interest in promoting education at all levels and his sincere kindness and support for this storied institution. So it's rather fitting that these lectures featuring some of our country's most distinguished historians and writers is named in his memory. Uh, this series was specifically made possible by generous gifts to the museum by the Wilkinson family writ large. And, and we're so honored that they continue with their support of this institution and our important mission of preservation in education here in Virginia. Judge Wilkinson, uh, the son and former trustee here at the museum, sadly could not be with us this evening. Uh, he may be with us at a distance virtually, I hope he is. Uh, as such, he asked if I would be so kind as to read a note from him. Um, and so I would like to read that now. He says, greetings to all from the Wilkinson family. Due to my doctor's stern instructions, I cannot attend this evening. I am so proud of the remarkable re renovation and improvements at the VMHC. During my tenure on the board, the vision and dedication I observed from trustees, management, and staff were absolutely extraordinary. I'm glad that the Wilkinson Lecture has played a small part in VMHC's success. Charlie Bryan, who's here, Paul Levengood, and he says Jamie Boskett, and many others have brought the most distinguished of a highly talented generation of historians to this very building. The series has endured because its standards of excellence have never been compromised. And a little executive privilege, I'm not sure I fit in those ranks, but Charlie, you really started this and, and deserve the credit. My father, thank you. Judge Wilkinson goes on, he says, my father, whom this lecture honors, was an extraordinary man. During these fractured times, his civic spirit and generosity are needed more than ever. This lecture is the perfect way to remember him. He loved history for its own sake. More than that, though, he saw America and Virginia's story of liberty and opportunity without rival on this planet. He thought that recognizing our past shortcomings would lead to a more inclusive and inspiring future. My father was truly a man for all seasons. Thank you so much for honoring his memory with your attendance here today. Those of you who knew my dad would join me in missing him still. Every day of my life, I have been blessed to have been his son. So Jay, I hope that you're watching. Thank you very much for your message, for your generosity. We miss you and look forward to the next time. Now, at this point, I'd like to move forward and introduce our speaker, um, and, and I'll use this moment to please remind you, turn off anything that may make noise. If you have something in your pocket, just go ahead and double check to make sure it's been muted. Tonight, we are so fortunate to have such a renowned historian. Let me start with a couple of questions. Was the American Revolution really a revolution? Was George Washington a great general? Well, 
after 10 years in Malvern, I think I could answer that one. <laughs> Was the American victory a miracle or inevitable? Tonight's speaker will explore these questions and more in his lecture, complicating conventional narratives to present a richly nuanced vision of this foundational moment in American history. Dr. Joseph Ellis is one of our nation's leading scholars of American history. A professor of history, he has taught in the Leadership Studies program at Williams College, the Commonwealth Honors College at the University of Massachusetts, Mount Holyoke College, and the United States Military Academy at West Point. In addition to frequent public lectures, his commentaries have been featured on C-SPAN, CNN, PBS's NewsHour, and he has appeared in several documentaries on early America. He is the author of 12 books. He has been awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Founding Brothers, the Revolutionary Generation, which is just one of my all-time favorites. He also won the National Book Award for American Sphinx, the character of Thomas Jefferson. Dr. Ellis's latest work, The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783, is an epic account of the origins and clashing ideologies of America's revolution. A landmark work of narrative history, The Cause challenges the story we have long told ourselves about our origins as a people and as a nation. It is my sincere honor to have with us this evening, and I hope you'll all please join me in a warm welcome, Dr. Joseph Ellis. Thank you for that generous introduction, and thank you for showing up. Um, um, I'm coming to you from uh, New England, but I I want to remind everybody, I was born a Virginian. Um, now, I know maybe Alexandria and Arlington don't count as Virginia, <laughs> but then I went to the College of William and Mary. And they saw fit to allow me to graduate. And, um, but then I went up to graduate school at Yale and up in New England, and I guess I've never come back. But I remember that I never realized I was a Southerner until I went North. <laughs> um, and I also had the good sense to marry a woman from Mississippi. So my Southern accent from your point of view, it's very almost non-existent, but from the point of view of people I tend to associate with in Amherst, Massachusetts, or my wife and I are thinking of moving up. We have a very humble abode in mid-Vermont, and we went up there for the start of the pandemic and stayed there. Um, at any rate, I'm very pleased to be able to play a role in this distinguished lecture series, and I'm terribly pleased to see the large number. And now, those of you who are in that student group, raise your, stand up, or let me see who you are. Okay, you're all back there, right? Okay. I'm giving you an assignment. I'm an old teacher. I mean, I taught for 44 years, for God's sakes old teacher. Um, at the end of my remarks, and I'm not going to read too much to you, I'm going to talk to you, okay? I don't believe in reading at you. I'm going to open it to questions, and I want you to start the questions. I want you to have questions. So I want you to think about that, and they'll have a mic back there for you, but give you the chance. Um, I want this audience to do the same thing because one of the things that I decided as I taught undergraduates is that an un a liberal arts education is wasted on the young. <laughs> they haven't lived enough to know what they ought to know and how to focus. And like all the big decisions you make in life, like where you go to college, who you marry, what you do as a job, every one of those decisions you have to make without, with not enough information to make it totally reliable. You know what I'm saying? 
but we're going to privilege the young people for the questions and we're going to then open it to the audience and i hope that we have questions we are in a divisive moment in our history i think the civil war is more divisive it's not unprecedented but like i believe that we can go back to the past and argue it's a safe place for us to gather and have disagreements and um the constitution is not a set of truths it's a framework in which you argue about what the truths are um and so i'd like to create that kind of environment here in this auditorium um it says that this book it's on the cover it says a culminating work on the american founding by one of our leading historians that means I'm culminated. <laughs> that means that's it. <laughs> you might as well roll over, Mr. Ellis, and die. In truth, about 30 years ago, I started to write books about what I came to call the founding. Now, people had used that term before, historians, but that I basically made it a term that referred to what historians divvy up into a series of different periods, pre-colonial, colonial, revolutionary, post-revolutionary, early republic, um, then what's the, the early 19th century. Pre, uh, I'm saying the period roughly from 1763 to 1803, I pick 1803 because what's happened in 1803? Louisiana Purchase, you got it, somebody got it, okay. Jefferson never put it on his tombstone, never put the presidency on his tombstone. Um, you could expand it from 1763, the founding, to 1826. What happened in 1826? Andrew Jackson, Adams and Jefferson both died on July 4th, 1826. If you wrote a novel, you couldn't make that up, okay? I think they willed their deaths. All those, Madison got close. He got to June 28th. 1836. Monroe made it. He died on July 4th. I forget the specific date. So I think they willed their, but anyway, that's the, the death of a generation. And um, so anyway, I've been writing about that for 35 years. And the book that has been my most recent publication should have been the first. It's the beginning of the story. It carries us from 1763 through the end of the war and the treaty in 1783. It's weird, but this is the book that I should have started with. And now, but since then, I've read the papers of, all the papers of, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, and Alexander Hamilton. I had to do that to write what I've already written, okay? So when I come to this topic at this culminating stage of my life, <laughs> I've got all kinds of stuff stored up in the way of evidence and note cards, but also um, impressions. So this is a book I should have written 30 years ago, but it wouldn't be the same book if I had done so. And I think it represents a more distilled version of whatever you might call wisdom, uh, but at least of my own interpretive instincts. What I want to do is refer you to three or four or five themes that are in the book as a way of framing issues that we can debate at the end. 
most historians of the revolutionary era tend to look at the British side of the story from the American perspective. That's totally natural, it's patriotic. I also wanted to look at it from the British perspective. What in God's name did the British think they were doing? Because, now this is the conclusion of this section, so I'm giving you the conclusion before you get the explanation. The decision to make war against the Americans in 1776 is the biggest blunder in the history of British statecraft. Because, and this should be familiar to us as Americans, the war was both unnecessary and unwinnable, and they were stepping into a quagmire. Sound familiar? <laughs> um, broaden that out a bit, Professor Ellis. Okay. The mistake they're about to tragically make becomes necessary or almost inevitable because of a great triumph. In the French and Indian War, the British win a third of the North American continent. Think of that. Everything from the Mississippi to the Atlantic, including Canada, though not most of Florida. Up until then, the government of the colonies had been loose. The words of Edmund Burke are probably most appropriate. They, they were governed with benign neglect. And in 1763, having acquired this new trophy in the expanding British Empire, the question was, oh, how do we govern it? And they, we have to establish some sort of rules and laws that uh, allow the parliament and the king to be able to oversee this part of the empire. And it's in their attempt to bring those laws into place that the British cross a line that the colonists regard as, well, tyrannical. They will be taxed without their consent. They're being, in order to pray for the kind of troops that are gonna be necessary to protect the borders, and by the way, all the stuff that they raise money, you know, the, like the, the Stamp Act costs more to fund the people collecting the stamps than it collects. Um, at any rate, the colonists develop the argument that there is a plot hatched in Britain to make them slaves. Slavery becomes the great metaphor. The Brits aren't going to make them slaves. They're going to make them colonists. They're going to make them second-rate British citizens. But it is true, and many of the pamphleteers, including people like James Otis and John Dickinson and John Adams, make this point. Once we acknowledge Parliament's sovereignty, we can't, dis we can't control what they're going to do. And everything they do for the next couple of years makes it look pretty bad. Therefore, but my point here, Great Britain is going to make this big mistake. It is a mistake that almost all newly arrived world powers make, including us. They step onto the stage brimming over with confidence sure of their economic and military superiority. The Brits, one of the British officers speaking in uh, probably on a, with a little bit of booze, his regiment can march from Boston to Florida and conquer every colonist and um, castrate every male. And they are just through having a good experience at establishing British control over both Ireland and Scotland. Guess what? This ain't going to be like, uh, like Ireland or Scotland. The scale of the theater is much, much more difficult. At any rate, 
Back to the conclusion, this will prove to be the biggest blunder in the history of British statecraft because while it's true, we almost lose the war, the British cannot win it. They could have stayed for 100 years with 50,000 troops and they don't have 50,000 troops and it wouldn't have made any difference. And I'll explain to you why. The book also attempts to recover some sense of what the war was like as a war. Most of all the images that we see when we go to museums and to um, places like Monticello and Mount Vernon, their portraits, or if you look in now the famous rotunda of the Capitol, they're pictures by Trumbull and Charles Wilson Peel, Gilbert Stewart, and they provide a somewhat classical or, if you will, romanticized view of the battle and war. They're dying in poses, often poses drawn from ancient art. If there were a, what's the name of the photographer during the Civil War? Matthew Brady, thank you. Good. I tell you the best, you know, um, if there was a Matthew Brady present for the revolution, we would think about it very differently than we do. Um, at a statistical level, more Americans per capita died in the American Revolution than in any war in American history except the Civil War. And then the reason it's so high in the Civil War is because both sides count. Um, if you were a prisoner of war of the British, you had a 30% chance of survival. The British were more barbaric towards prisoners of war than the Japanese. The main British prison camp was a series of ships in the East River. Um, 18,000 people went in, 3,000 came out. They threw the bodies into the East River. And so when American troops take over New York at the end of the war, the stench up and down Manhattan is incredible. Battle is great. You know, the best kind of battle scenes is like, what's that Scottish movie that's um, great? The, those scenes are very, now this is not a medieval battle, but most of it is done close up. Um, with rifle butts and bayonets. It takes a certain kind of discipline and experience to maintain your composure and your position while the man next to you is disemboweled. It takes a certain amount of training to be able to retreat in an orderly way or to load and reload three to four times a minute rather than once a minute. That's what had to happen for the Continental Army to be a really first-rate army. And it took a while for that to happen. But in the interim, and in the, in the countryside, there's an unofficial war going on, mostly because of foraging expeditions by both sides. And let's say New, Western New Jersey or the Carolinas or parts of Western Virginia, you're living out there. If a British unit comes by, especially if it's a loyalist unit, they're the worst. Okay, the uh, the, the Hessians are next worst, then British are least worst. They're going to come by and they're going to say they're going to confiscate all of your your produce. They're going to ask the male of the family to come out and watch as they rape all the women. They're then going to execute the male in front of the women, and then they're going to burn the house down. Three or four or 5,000 casualties that don't count in the larger numbers occurred that way. And both sides become terrorists in the Southern theater, especially. Um, so it's a dirty war. Um, it's a, and it's, it's a, a war that needs to be recovered in, in its brutality in a way that the pictures that we look at don't, don't do at all. There are a variety of historical camps, historiography, we call it, the history of history. 
the, the, on the revolution. There's the Whig school, the progressive school, the imperialistic school, the neo-Whig school, the neo-progressive school, and there's something now that I don't know what the hell to call it. Um, I think that those schools ultimately mean, as historian, do you look at the elite that's making the case for American independence and emphasize the cogency of their argument and their role as intellectual leaders in shaping this, the cause. And there you're gonna have people like Adams at the, at the helm, eventually Jefferson. Um, John Dickinson is the most important one of all who falls by the wayside because he doesn't sign the declaration. Um, James Otis, very influential, though he goes nuts before the war, literally crazy. Or do we look at people on the ground who are ordinary Americans at that time and are the ones reading these pamphlets, which are often uh, printed in, in ways and posted on the tavern wall so that one copy is read by 20 people? One of the interesting distinctive features of the American population is its high, late, high literacy rate. The literacy rate among everybody in Britain is 5%. The literacy rate in New England, which has got the best numbers, is 90%. Um, among wet males in, in the South, it's close to 90%. Um, but that... Uh, so, and there are 52 newspapers being published spreading these words. That's a lot. Um, uh, that what's happening on the ground is this. In 1775, the Continental Congress creates something called the Continental Association. It was intended to enforce at the local level the non-importation laws that they were passing in order to punish Britain and hopefully avoid war, get Britain to back off. We're not going to buy your goods. In order for us to not buy your goods, we've got to assure that people on the ground abide by those rules. But after 76, these committees, and get this, there are over 3,000 of them. Every town, every hamlet has them. Every city has 10 or 12 of them. Who's on them? Women as well as men. And after 76, what happens? Somebody comes to your door. Let's say it's your next door neighbor. Let's say it's a woman you've known for 20 years and says, well, I'm here to ask you to sign this document committing to the cause. And I know you, you, you're going to think about it and, and I'll give you some time. And he says, well, I'll, I'll need a week. You come back in a week. He says, we can't decide. Well, I'm sorry to hear that because your name is going to appear in the paper as a traitor. <laughs> and no, nobody's going to sell you any goods and you can't come to church and go to dances. And our strong advice is that you move from, to some other place. We're not going to kill you. Okay, get this. There's no guillotine or firing squad wall here. We're going, it's like a church. You're being cast out of the congregation. And eventually some of them do get killed, but uh, not many. That's the pressure that's being exerted at the local level. And that's the underlying reason the British can never win the war. Because, and a British admiral said this, the British army moving through the American theater is like a ship going through the ocean. And behind the ship, the wave is closing over wherever it has been. Every time the British vacate a city like Boston or Philadelphia, take a look and you'll see there are several thousand loyalists going with them 
because if they stay, they'll be persecuted. Um, the Americans control the countryside. There is a, there is a, you'll read this in some textbooks that there was a one third, one third, one third. John Adams said one third of the people were for the revolution, one third were against, and one third were indifferent. He actually didn't say that. <laughs> he said that about the American opinion of the French Revolution. What are the real numbers best based on the scholarship of the last 20 or 30 years? The real numbers are sort of like this. And this is only the white population. There's 500,000 people who are African-Americans, 20% of the population, highest in the history of the United States. The high point of the black population in the United States is reached in 1776. Boy, um, what was I talking about? What I was just talking about. Oh, one third, one third, thank you, yes. It's really, 40% are very pro-revolution. 20% are opposed. Within that opposition, there's a spectrum, however. People, some people will serve with the British Army, others will just simply want everything to, you know, they'll move away. 40% are indifferent. They want to just do their normal farming. Remember, the ordinary American in that period of time is born, raised, and dies within a three-hour horse ride. And I know some of you are back in the back don't believe this, but they didn't have cell phones. <laughs> um, um, I had a student in Mount Holyoke once say, to Bella Brandenwine, he was outflanked, as he always is, by General Howe. Why didn't he just call the left flank on his cell phone? <laughs> it's been my experience as a teacher of undergraduates, and it's been the pleasure, but really the center of my life, professional life. The vast majority of undergraduates have a difficult time thinking that anything happened before they were born. <laughs> really, it's a really a cognitive problem. Um, I'm sure these people are all exceptions to that rule. <laughs> At any rate, you begin to see why the British can't win the war here because they can't cap, they can't control the territory. They can't control, it's too big a theater. Um, now, and okay. I also want to say something that we made reference to in the early remarks uh, in my introduction. So one, I want to also recover for the modern reader a recognition that the American Revolution succeeded because it failed. What? The French Revolution failed because it succeeded. The Russian Revolution failed because it succeeded. Now do you know what I'm getting at? The American Revolution was based on a set of promises about equality that are implicit in Jefferson's famous, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, look and notice, he doesn't say life, liberty, and property. He changes Locke's property to pursuit of happiness. That removes the defense of slavery from the equation, although the Virginians keep putting it back in, in their, in their state constitutions. Um, this is a prudent revolution. The people leading it are not intellectual lunatics like France <laughs> or intellectual radicals of the Marxist-Leninist sort in Russia. These are mostly experienced political leaders at the local and state level. And most of them, uh, many of them have gone to law school up in England, but there is the most forgotten paragraph in the declaration is the one that begins uh, 
prudence dictates that governments long established should not be ended for light and transient reasons. That's a revolutionary statement. <laughs> no, at the time he's writing that, he's thinking we still can avoid war and we want the British to, to, to meet us halfway. But the implicit promise that is being made is there should be no property qualification to vote. And that's true at every sit, every colony, if there is a, such a thing, women should get to vote. Slavery is incompatible with the values we claim we're fighting for. They all say the last thing, by the way, Jefferson, Washington, they all say it's contradiction. But we cannot attempt to implement all those at once. To do so would be to destroy the unity we already have to, as a union. And therefore, we're not really about revolutions, we're about evolutions. Now, if you're a believer in women's rights, and remember, the people, when the people gather at uh, Seneca Falls in 1848, what's the first line of their manifesto? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. Um, when um, Martin Luther King gathers, makes his speech on kind of the Lincoln Memorial in August of 1963, by the way, I was there for this. Uh, he said, I've come to collect a promissory note written by Thomas Jefferson. Now, it's a hell of a long, if you believe justice delayed is justice denied, as many of my liberal friends do, you know, this is bad news. But I'm telling you that the greatest, it was incredible wisdom on their part to defer the full implications of the revolution's meaning. That was an act of brilliance on their part, as a matter of fact. Now, how long it should have been deferred and whether or not it should have happened in slavery, there was a shot. That's the next LS book, by the way, just to show that I'm not culminated. Um, <laughs> the next book's gonna be a book called The Dark Side of the Founding. And uh, it's gonna be about slavery and Indian removal. And the issue is gonna be, are they Greek tragedies or are they Shakespearean tragedies? By Greek tragedy, I mean in, incapable of resolution by human leadership embedded tis the will of the gods or shakespearean the the failure of leaders and i think indian removal is a, is a greek tragedy i think ending slavery is a shakespearean tragedy and anyway i'm not going to give it away because i need your money for the next book <laughs> <laughs> um um at any rate i want to read you a section at the very end of the book it's about, the, it's about the moment in Baltimore. My mother was born in Baltimore. She was a nightclub singer in Baltimore, yeah. Um, in December of 1783, Washington's come down from New York where he's been, he's kept the army up in Newburgh. He's come down to surrender his sword and his commission. Why Baltimore? Because that's the nation's capital. Actually, we aren't a nation. What are we if we're not a nation? Confederation, yes. The South in 1860-61 had a better argument about the source of, of the Constitution than, than the North. Lincoln's, the, most, the first sentence in the most famous speech in American history is historically incorrect. Four score and seven years ago, our, father, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth a confederation of sovereign states provisionally united to win the war and then go their separate ways under the Articles of Confederation. That's the truth. And believe me, I'm a Yankee. I, you know, so, uh, um, at any rate, he comes down to Baltimore. They, the capital has moved 
from Philadelphia to Trenton to Princeton to Trenton to Baltimore. And people are making jokes in the paper. It's like a traveling, you know, uh, road show. Eventually, it's going to end up in New York, and then it's going to move back to Philadelphia, and then it's going to move to D.C. But right now, it's in Baltimore. Washington appears before the group. The, by the way, uh, they can't raise a quorum. The Congress that is going to hear this is really illegal because they can't raise a quorum. Not enough people have showed up. Some people said, I didn't know the Capitol was in Baltimore. Last time I looked, it was in Trenton. <laughs> I went all the way to Trenton. and I. <laughs> but so the, the head of the, the president, acting president, a guy called Mifflin, who hates Washington, by the way, because Washington got him fired from the job of quartermaster. He simply refuses to call a quorum. And therefore, they're going to hear Washington. Mr. President, Washington began, his hands visibly trembling. The great events on which my resignation dependent, depended, having at last taken place, meanwhile, meaning we won the war. I have now have the honor of offering my sincere congratulations to Congress and of presenting myself before them to surrender into their hands the trust committed to me and to calm the indulgence of retiring and, and to claim the indulgence of retiring from the service of my country. Witnesses recall that his voice faltered at this moment. He temporarily lost his composure. And one witness says the whole house felt his agitation, but he recovered. Happy in the confirmation of our independence and sovereignty and pleased with the opportunity afforded the United States of becoming a respectable nation. Bad word. Nobody thought it was a nation. When they used that word, it's, oh, no, we're not a nation. I resigned with satisfaction the appointment I accepted with diffidence. He said, nation, not confederation choosing not to conceal his more expansive hopes for the cause. He and most officers in the Continental Army, and by the way, they will become a majority of the delegates of the Constitutional Convention, really believe the failure to establish a nation um, is fatal for whatever, whatever kind of government we're going to have afterwards. And they've developed that view because during the war, the Continental Army is kept on life support. If you if you if you ask Washington or Hamilton, and people did, and therefore I've read what they said, how many troops do you think you can raise given this population? So eighty thousand, given the demography. He never got more than twelve thousand. He and Hamilton both said, if you gave us what we asked for, they asked for sixty thousand. They kept asking, never got it. If you'd given us 60, we could have won the war in a year and a half. That's what he said. And he's probably right because they would have destroyed the British army more quickly. At any rate, in these remarks, he is making it clear to the listeners that he is a nationalist which makes him a minority in this group, but he's a firm nationalist. Next, Washington expressed his hope that Congress would acknowledge the distinguished merits of the officer corps, pointing to his two aides, both of whom wore the insignia of the Society of the Cincinnati. The Society of the Cincinnati was an organization set up at the very end of the war by the officers of the Continental Army to take care of widows and wounded veterans. It became, it was demonized as the attempt to, to establish some sort of standing army or group of aristocracy because membership in the, in the uh, society was to be passed on by male heir, to the male heir. And by the way, it meant that Washington wouldn't have anybody to, to do it to because he had no heirs. 
no male heirs, and none of his own. Anyway, so people who, members of the Society of the Cincinnati, went back to their hometowns, places like Connecticut, and were thrown in jail for being members of the Society of the Cincinnati. Um, the, the behavior of the, of the civilian population towards the Continental Army is unbelievable, literally. And um, if I have any real heroes that come out of this book, it's an ordinary soldier in the Continental Army who, who stood, who stayed for the duration. Uh, Joseph Plum Martin has got a profile in there. He's one such creature, but uh, they sacrificed a heck of a lot and they didn't get anything. They didn't get a pension. And many of them were thrown in jail because they had borrowed money uh, and were in debt. The treatment of the Continental Army, incredible. He ended succinctly, did Washington, but melodramatically that with words that had Jeffersonian overtones. I think Jefferson wrote him. He was there. And he was friends with Washington at this stage, very close friends, but I can't prove it. But you doesn't this sound Jeffersonian? Having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding farewell to the august body under whom I have long acted. I offer here my commission and take leave of all the employments of public life. He then walked straight to the door behind his aides while the applause was still ringing, mounted Nelson, his favorite charger, and rode toward Mount Vernon with Billy Lee at his side, his manservant that's with him throughout the war. It was the greatest exit and perhaps the most consequential moment in American history. And I think we are in a position now to understand its significance even more than before. Jefferson understood what he had just witnessed. He wrote, the moderation and character of a single man, he wrote a friend, has probably prevented this resolution from being closed as most others have been by a subversion of the liberty it was intended to establish. Jefferson was thinking of, all, of Caesar and Cromwell if he had access to a crystal ball, he could have mentioned Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Castro, um, and a host of African dictators and the head of, of Russia right now. Washington's resignation was reported with awe and amazement in European newspapers from London to Vienna. Everybody thought Washington was going to be the monarch. When word reached George III, he expressed disbelief. If he does that, he declared, he will become the greatest man in the world. He did, and at least for the moment, he was. That's how the book ends. And for us now, I think it preaches a lesson that we should think about and maybe even talk about, although I don't want to get into January 6th shit. <laughs> Um, I've, talk, I've talked for a while and I uh, wanted to leave, you know how every professor, you've heard this, every professor says, we'll leave room for questions. And then of course it never happens, you know. <laughs> this will be the exception to that rule. Let me look back to the back of the room there. Are there any, is there anything that I said that you want to question or you want to ask an amplification or anything that I should have said that you think are important parts of the story? Yes, over there. You mentioned that uh, Britain joining, uh, sorry, Britain fighting in the Revolutionary War uh, was a mistake since they had a very low chance at winning. Uh, of course, they didn't know that. Yeah. They should have known that. Yeah. If you and I were there, we could have told them, right? <laughs> so what's calling having a crystal ball, but yes. So uh, my question is, in your opinion, uh, is anyone joining a war that they have a low chance of winning at a mistake? So, for example, Britain's involvement in World War II or the current war in Ukraine. I think that the people that are making the mistake in the current war in Ukraine is Putin and the Russians. 
And that they will discover that that is an unwinnable war and it will drain their resources enormously. You can also think, think of it this way. Britain never surrendered in the American Revolution. They didn't lose. They just decided to give to leave. The game was not worth the candle. And but think about this. I mean, uh, here, here's a question for any and all of you back there, because I'm not sure what the right answer is. I'm asking is that your lawyers should never do this. Teachers do it all the time. Ask a question you're not sure about the answer. Between 1750 and 1950, how many wars did Great Britain lose? I think one. This one. Now, they could have, there's somebody, Afghanistan, they get out of Afghanistan, but they never commit to Afghanistan in the same way that we do. Um, uh, the Boer War, they win it at a great cost. World War I, they win it at a great cost. World War II, they win it. They don't win it. We really win it. But, um, um, but uh, the loss of the American empire is not as they originally thought it would be the beginning of the end of the British empire. British, the British empire will reach its triumph under Victoria in the 19th century. The term that George III used sounds familiar. If we lose America, we'll lose Jamaica. And if we lose Jamaica, we'll lose Barbados. And if we lose Barbados, we'll lose the Mediterranean. If we lose the Mediterranean, we'll lose India. The domino theory. Okay. Same. And um, turns out the only way you could have lost all those other colonies is if you tried to stay in North America because you didn't have the naval or military resources to, to, to control that particular theater. And that's the reason they got out. That's the real reason they decided to get out. Okay, back up there. Something really, hmm, I don't know how to put it. Something that hits you that's emotional as well as rational about what was said. Yes, good. Like a preacher, you got to have, you know, emotional. Yeah. Stand up, please. We do have mics also. So if you want to ask a question, just like raise your hand. I'm calling on people, and so it's hard for them to know. Okay. All right, whoever's close to a mic, please talk. Okay, so earlier, you mentioned a student bringing out a phone as a method of communication. Say that again. I said earlier, you mentioned one of your students, like asking. Oh, about cell phone. Yeah, the cell phone lady. Yeah. Okay, so how much of an impact do you believe the communication? that was available during the war impacted the war? And do you believe that if there was a more effective method of communication at the time, that it maybe could have changed the outcome of the yeah, war? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, it's, a, it's true of the whole founding. The founding is pre-democracy, pre-capitalism, pre it's pre-Darwin, um, it's pre-Mendel, it's pre-Freud. Uh, it's pre-internet, it's pre-nuclear weapons. So like when I was doing a book tour for a book on Washington, everybody, the Iraq war was just really exploding. What would Washington do about Iraq? And I said, he wouldn't know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. And in fact, it wouldn't have existed in that time. But they kept pressing me, as you know, or as they often do. And so I developed an answer that they didn't like, but it's, I think, true. Washington would eventually, if you kept pestering him, say, how did we become the British? Hmm. Yeah. Um, because he's uncomfortable with that. Um, all right. Uh, Let's leave it a couple more questions. And there's a gentleman over there. Or is that right, sir? Are you standing up? Yeah, Washington resigned his commission from Annapolis at the state capitol. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. You're right. I, I, I said, why did I say Baltimore? Because I was fixated on my mother. <laughs> Absolutely right. It's, yeah, it, it's a, 
uh, I know that. I know what you're telling me is true. It's Annapolis, not Baltimore. It's a really even a smaller city. And thank you. Yes. Uh, so in the beginning, you mentioned that you read a lot of people's papers, and I wanted to know who had the most interesting papers as well as what was the most interesting thing that you read. If you pick all the founders, the most interesting to read is Adams. Adams in his letters tells you what, not only what he's thinking, but what he's feeling. Adams's diaries are about the storms inside his soul. Washington's diaries about the weather. <laughs> Washington doesn't think it's any of our business to know what the hell he's thinking. He destroyed all the, he asked Martha to destroy all their correspondence when he died, which he did. Three letters survived. So the Adams correspondence is truly distinctive in that regard. Um, Jefferson's correspondence is extremely lyrical. And in some ways, although when I say he's a better writer, it's, and I had a student once and we were reading the Adams Jefferson correspondence and she said, this is Jefferson's style. This is Adams' style. <laughs> So it's a matter of taste, if you will. Uh, but Jefferson floats. Jefferson lives in an utopian world where certain, if you can imagine equality, then it must be possible. Really? Uh, um, and, but this is, you're onto writing here. Franklin's really good. Um, Madison's boring as shit. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, but I lost my head. Um, anyway, there you got some sample. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was just. Curious. Oh, sir. Excuse me. No, that's was, almost as bad as Annapolis, you know. <laughs> no, I was just curious on your opinion that the British. Um, invading and trying to stay in America was the greatest malfunction in statecraft. What was your view on the French intervention in the American Revolution? Ah, that led into their um. They revolution? led to their own revolution because it cost them so much. That's right. Vergennes, the command, the the person in France, the American economy and support for the war is provided ninety percent by France. Ninety percent. We, the states, provide 10%, okay? The uniforms, the weaponry, the French pay for it. And Franklin is a brilliant, Franklin is like Prometheus. The British are so upset at Franklin because here is this, this nation of second-rate humbug, and they happen to have representing them the greatest diplomat in the in the speaking world, the heavyweight champion of diplomacy, who is Franklin. Um, and Franklin is the one who gets all this money from France. And even at the end, when we we basically sell him out, we sell out in the we, we were supposed to have a joint treaty with France, but we sign a separate treaty with Great Britain. Um, he then goes back and asks Regents for more money. And um, in the end, the question is, is, is correct. The debt that is generated by their contribution to the American cause, to the cause, essentially produces a crisis, an economic crisis that forces the calling of the Estates General. And the calling of the Estates General, and then the, up till now, you see, if you lived in France and you're an aristocrat, by definition, you didn't pay taxes. It sounds weird, doesn't it? But that, that's the way, you know, being an aristocrat means you don't do that. You had to do that kind of stuff. And, um, and this is how the French Revolution, this first move towards it. And the question is absolutely right. It's generated by the debt that they, they accrue in supporting the American Revolution. It's true. That's a good question. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I can qualify that. We could lose, though. Okay? And we almost do. We get really close. 
for the for the, for the British, 1778, when the French come in. Because now the British have to disperse their forces throughout the empire to defend it against France. They can't concentrate it in any way on the North American theater. And at that point, the Brits say, some of the British ministries say, look, our goal here isn't to win the war. It's, we'll just use um, coastal cities in North America as naval bases to protect our possessions in the Caribbean. The, Jamaica by itself has, has a larger impact on the British economy than all the colonies put together. Put together. It's their crown jewel. Um, but I think once 78 happens, it's, there's no way. However, what I was saying, Yorktown happens in 1781. The American economy is bankrupt. If you think inflation is bad now, you should have seen it then. Of course, they didn't have to pay for gas, but uh, <laughs> uh, but and um, the American the Continental Army was barely existent. It was being reinforced by the French Army, and that's what produced the numbers at at uh, Yorktown but it's the French fleet at Yorktown that makes the victory possible. But that what would have happened if you didn't have Yorktown? I think there was a movement afoot among British, excuse me, European powers, um, Austria, Russia, Prussia, as well as Fran uh, France, to get an armistice called in the war. And the, there was a Latin phrase they used to describe that meant whoever possesses control at that moment keeps it. Uti possedatus, okay? If that had happened, and we were vulnerable to that because the army was virtually going out of existence, Virginia would be speaking with a British accent. <laughs> we would have lost the South. Now, certainly the Carolinas and Georgia, maybe not Virginia, but uh, that, uh, but who whoever controlled the land would control would would gain it. And that would have been a boon for the slave owners, because um, there were not going to be a challenge to their slavery. Um, the British don't end slavery until 1833. Um, so history would have moved in a very different direction if that had happened. And it was close. And if you take a look, and I do pretty much of a, I don't look at every battle. I mean, I don't file, look at every cannonball fired into the distance, but I do a close look at Yorktown. A series of things happened in, that you could never expect. There were accidents that happened and, and allowed the, the the French fleet happens to arrive because of a hurricane in the Caribbean at just the right moment when Cornwallis is, for mysterious reasons, deciding to locate his army on the coast. And it's uh, it, a lot of things have to happen in, uh, in, in the right sequence for us to win that battle. And they do. And they do. Um, you, we, the man said at the beginning, you know, how do you judge Washington as a general? No great general in world history, much less American history, had lost more battles than George Washington. He lost every battle, conventional battle he had, which he was opposed by General Howe. Everyone. He was outflanked. In part, you can't blame him because he's got inferior troops. He doesn't have the same officer class and NCOs, and later he will have that. However, he is the greatest American military leader in history because he won the war. He lost most of the battles, but he won the war. Why did he win the war? Because he reached a very, very simple strategic insight. Took him a little while, took him a year and a half. I don't have to win. The Brits have to win. It's a lot easier not to lose. 
And that just meant keep the Continental Army intact. And that's it. And only fight battles. It's called a war of posts. It's not a guerrilla war because it's a conventional army. But anyway, think of this. All of the great generals end up losers. Hannibal, Napoleon, Robert E. Lee. Washington loses all the battles and ends up a winner. I go with the winner. <laughs> I think we are supposed to end pretty soon. And um, I hope I've at least allowed you some questions in a way that permitted you to have a voice in this exchange. Um, give it a look. If you take a look at the first, at the, at the, uh, or the preface, if you take a look at the preface and you like it, buy it. <laughs> if you don't like it, don't buy it. <laughs> We're going to make it one way or the other. <laughs> Thank you very much. I wasn't sure I was going to make this because three weeks ago I had spinal surgery. Never have spinal surgery unless you really have to. I had to. And after two weeks, I couldn't walk. I couldn't even stand up. And I was going to have to call down and say, cancel. And then one day I got up and I was okay. 